Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. This week was momentous, historic, a source of delight for the president and ominous for his critics. The Senate's acquittal of Trump was accompanied amid bipartisan warnings of congressional failures. The president, loud and proud, took three cracks at celebrating at the State of the Union the night before, a prayer breakfast the day after, and also a pugnacious White House rally surrounded by allies. Uh, It was evil. It was corrupt. It was dirty cops. uh, It was leakers and liars. And this should never, ever happen to another president, ever. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi tore up her copy of Trump's State of the Union right after he finished. The whole State of the Union was beneath the dignity of the White House, an insult to the Congress of the United States and the American people. We'll have our reporters roundtable on all that news, the race for the Democratic presidential nomination and more this hour. But so much news is pelting us so fast, I'd like to take a pause to take stock of where we stand in Washington and as a nation. Joining me here in our New York studio is Mark Lacey. He's national editor for The New York Times. Mark, thanks for coming in. Great to be here with you. Mark Lacey, if I recall correctly, you covered the last time a president uh, went on trial in the United States Senate, I believe, for the Los Angeles Times at that time. That's right. That's right. Um, This is the third time in American history that uh, we've had a president on trial in the Senate, subject to the possibility of removal. It happened only days ago. It feels almost as like it happened weeks ago with this cycle. Uh, Remind us a little bit about the importance of this, what this means for us as a country, and what what it means, how we should think about Trump as a president in the wake of it. Well, one thing we have to realize is that a lot of countries around the world don't have um, systems like this. They don't have a way, an orderly way to judge a president, remove a president. They um, they rely on other means, um, you know, and extra constitutional means, violent means. We, we do have a structure. And so a lot of people are looking at the events of this week and believing that democracy is collapsing, that w- our country is in total disarray. I like to take a step back and I've covered various countries around the world that aren't doing so well. You covered countries in Africa, Latin America. Exactly, exactly, where coups are are common. And and so we have a structure um, and I I like to, um, you know, take a step back and sort of say that our system may not be um, pleasing everyone. It is deeply flawed. We're going to talk, I'm sure, about Iowa in a second, but we have a system and we're going to get through this system. And um, I I think back to um, the Clinton impeachment, the bitter partisanship, the sense that our country couldn't get anything done. And was this the end of the world? And we, we got through it. You mentioned President Clinton. Uh, uh, we heard a little bit of, of uh, what Trump had to say in the wake or – both in the anticipation of and in the wake uh, of his acquittal. Uh, Contrast the two tones that you heard from the two acquitted but impeached presidents. Right, right. So I I was there the day after um, uh, 
Clinton was uh, acquitted and he was uh, remorseful. Um, he, he apologized. Um, he, um, you know, in a sense, fessed up to he got the country into this mess. Um, this is and, on me. Exactly. Exactly. Finally. It, it, Finally. It, it took him a long time. It took him a long time. And, he, and another big thing is that he called for the country to come together and try to work together through the rest of his uh, his uh, presidency. Um, you know, the, the, what happened uh, this week could not be more different. Um, uh, President Trump has not acknowledged any wrongdoing. It was a, a great uh, phone call, a wonderful phone call. There was the nothing. The call to the Ukrainian president. Exactly. There was nothing he did wrong in his view. Um, and you heard the um, you heard his words. You know, the, the people who did this to him were evil, nasty. He is he is combative. He is not contrite in the least. He's the exact opposite. And you have a sense that that state of the union was was just jaw dropping the Why? the lack of a i mean this this is a ceremony this is a body that um does not allow one senator uh to um to disparage directly another senator everyone is a distinguished gentleman and gentle lady there's like this sense of decorum and all that was out the window uh, the other day, and you had, you know, uh, the lack of handshakes. You had a speech being ripped up. Right, he refused to turn to Pelosi, shake her hand. Exactly, exactly. And at the end, she returned the favor. She returned the favor with a with a ripped up speech, and it reminded me. I, I mean, I, I've covered parliaments where you know chairs are thrown and <laughs> brawls happen. We didn't we didn't reach that level, but like decorum was out the window, and the sort of the sort of um, bitter bitterness that we see in Washington was just on full display. You offered a moment or two ago a notion of hope, of perspective, of, hey, this is a political process. However you feel about it, however unpretty it was, it played out through a political process. And yet I want to play you a voice of somebody who didn't turn against the president. On Monday, as the vote in the Senate trial neared, Senator Lisa Murkowski, an Alaska Republican, spoke to explain her vote to acquit Trump on both counts against him. Yet she offered no exoneration. She called the whole impeachment process rotten in both the House and in her own Senate. And she called the president's behavior shameful and wrong. And she continued this way. The question that we must answer, given the intense polarization in our country, is where do we go from here? Sadly, I have no definitive answers, but I do have hope. As I tried to build consensus over the past few weeks, I had, I had many private conversations with colleagues, and so many, so many in this chamber share my sadness for the present state of our institutions. It's my hope that we've finally found bottom here. Mark Lacey, there are two things that interest me here, one of which is she said basically I don't want to vote to convict in significant part because it's possible there could be a split vote 50-50 and I don't want the chief justice to have to cast a vote and like even symbolically and it just gets weird. Yep. She's like I just don't want to do that, which seemed to suggest to me that mentally she was kind of somewhere along that path at least in consideration. The second thing is even in saying that she has hope, 
She's just described her own institution as rotten. Right. Although she tra- – you know, plenty of little criticisms on the Democrats. She is nothing – no praise for her own party's leaders or for her own president. Um, that gave me incredible pause that that was a vote to acquit. That gave me concern about, about how Congress functions even beyond what I had before this week. Right, right. I'm with you. I, one, one really fascinating detail that came out in all of this is that Mitt Romney was the only Republican to uh, vote against his caucus and to vote uh, against Trump on one article of impeachment. There's a, there was a historical footnote that was noted that he's the first senator in history to vote against um, his party uh, in an impeachment. I mean, there's only one person who's done it. Um, And so that says something. Politics is part of the partisanship. Politics is part of the impeachment process. And I think the actions of a president have to be so egregious that they are going to make people vote against their party and possibly against their own political uh, interest. So you had just um, so I I agree with you. Um, she's describing um, something though that definitely existed back during the Clinton impeachment party line vote. Remember uh, Joe Lieberman, um, someone who was um, who who censured who who strongly criticized Bill Clinton, who was a one-time friend of his. Um, and, and that got a lot of attention. So we, we, we focus on these people who seem to be rising somewhat um, above partisanship, but partisanship is a strong force and pulls them back down into it often. A part of impeachment and also part of the American story. Absolutely. Uh, We've only got a couple of minutes left uh, with you, Mark Lacey, uh, but uh, it strikes me that two things, one of which is, of course, Romney is an outlier in part because the Nixon impeachment never got to the Senate. Exactly. And there were Republicans turning against him in the House that got him there. But the last thing is this. Trump has been acquitted. Clinton, as you mentioned from your own coverage and from your own experiences, chastened. Trump, the opposite. What guardrails are there in the last – year or last five years, depending on how November turns, uh, exist for to keep him in any way in check or to hold him within our understanding of what, you know, the president's role appropriately should be, given that he's been given a check on what even those who voted acquitted say are in some ways wrong and shameful. Right, right, right. So, so what sort of behavior you're asking could possibly result in a in another impeachment? Well, that's one way of thinking about it. it, it sure. Um, One thing that the Democrats have said they're going to continue to um, to investigate the Ukraine uh, matter. I don't imagine that going anywhere. But you're you're right that it would have to take something pretty grievous, pretty outrageous for a Mitch McConnell to turn on Donald Trump. But even let's say shy of impeachment, you know, which takes time and which is, you know, a big trauma to put the nation through. In the absence of that ultimate check, is there any check? Well, here's the check. The check is uh, November of 2020. The the check is the presidential election, um, the campaign. The check is the the voters. And uh, if if there's some uh, behavior that is so egregious, um, you know, presumably uh, we're we're a government, we're a system that relies on the wisdom of voters, and that's I think the fallback. And speaking in our last minute left, you have 
uh, reporters all over the country canvassing just those kinds of things. Do you find a sense of weariness? Do you find a sense of relief and, and delight? Do you find a sense of uh, frustration? Or do you, are people just retreated to their, uh, you know, polarized corners? Well, I think every one of those emotions you just rattled off exists out in the country. I mean, in the newsroom, we're ready to set up cots and take long naps. People are, have just reached their Plasma limits. Plasma drips. Yeah, they are, they are exhausted. Uh-huh. Out in the country, you feel... Um, you, you feel exhaustion at what's just gone on. Um, you feel real disappointment. But there's elation among tr- uh, Trump's biggest backers. That's the word from Mark Lacey. He's national editor for The New York Times. Mark, thanks so much. Thank you. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash On Point. That's Indeed.com slash On Point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflick. Let's dig into this tumultuous week. So many developments, so hard to keep up, harder still to gain context and perspective. We're going to seek to do just that. We've got just the right guests to do it. Joining me from Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, Jean Cummings. She's Deputy Washington Bureau Chief for The Wall Street Journal. Jean, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And joining us from Concord, New Hampshire, ahead of tonight's Democratic debate and ahead of next Tuesday's First in the Nation primary, Wendy Benjaminson. She's politics editor and 2020 campaign editor for Bloomberg News. Hey, Wendy. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, my pleasure. And just as a disclosure to folks, uh, Bloomberg News is owned by Bloomberg LP, its parent company, which is uh, the controlling owner of which is Mike Bloomberg, who happens to be running for president. Uh, he and his campaign have no control over the Bloomberg uh, newsroom, just a item to get out of the way. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what we've seen uh, this week. Um, I want to talk a little bit, I guess, first about uh, the president's reaction to his uh, to his acquittal in the United States Senate. I think this is an important moment. Yesterday, the president cheered his acquittal uh, at the White House, surrounded by his political allies. This is really not a news conference. It's not a speech. It's not anything. It's just we're sort of uh, it's a celebration because we have something that just worked out. I mean, it worked out. We went through hell unfairly, did nothing wrong, did nothing wrong. I've done things wrong in my life, I will admit. Not purposely, but I've done things wrong. But this is what the end result is. So, Wendy Benjaminson, uh, your politics editor, you're the editor of the campaign for your newsroom. 
tell us what we saw from the president in that uh, rally effectively at the White House and uh, and his other remarks uh, uh, following his acquittal. Well, I'm glad you bring up the term politics because starting with the State of the Union and moving right into that rally, it was a a political moment. It was a campaign rally. Um, You know, you had Republican senators and members of the House shouting four more years in the middle of the State of the Union. And one of the things that the president seems to forget every now and then is that Congress, the building, the Capitol, and the White House – they're not political buildings. They are owned by all of us, Republicans, Democrats, independents, non-voters. You know, it's owned by the American people. And um, that is not a place for uh, rallying a partisan message the way he did and a personal message the way he did uh, this week. What's so egregious about that, uh, Gene? Uh, what's so, you know, people shouting four more years at the president? I I may be wrong. I feel as though somebody, you know, some of the Democrats did that during the Clinton years at one point or another. What is the concern about decorum after all of the norms have been shattered in the past three plus years? Well, it is hard to measure what's outrageous these days because of everything (laughs) that has happened. Um, I have to say that the State of the Union, I'm with you, David. I, I think it shouldn't be a shock that they were screaming four more years because their sense of relief that the the um, impeachment process was about to end and they were going to be able to move on to something else. Um, the White House event was just bizarre. But I think of all of them events in the last 48 hours or so, the one that troubled me the most was the prayer breakfast. That Talk is about that. A bi- yeah, that's a that's an annual bipartisan event and that takes place. It took place during the Clinton years during impeachment, and tensions were high. And at the end of one of them, Tom DeLay, who was highly partisan Republican <clears throat> majority whip in the House that did impeach Clinton, uh, came to the end of a prayer breakfast and went to Hillary Clinton and apologized. And mm-hmm. so it moved him. It was a real prayer breakfast. And they've tried to keep it in that regard. But uh, the president used that particular pulpit to attack Pelosi right there, who was sitting feet from him, to uh, accuse her of lying about how she prays. I mean, that that's the one that I thought is was completely um, a different benchmark that we have really seen before and one that was— totally, totally out of place. You know, at that prayer breakfast, if I recall correctly, Gene, uh, the president denigrated uh, what he said with those who are, who claim to use faith. And he denigrated Nancy Pelosi, who he says, she says she prays for me. I don't know that she does that. And then he denigrated Mitt Romney, uh, the Utah Republican, not an accident. Utah Senator uh, Mitt Romney was his the party's nominee, that is the Republican Party's nominee just eight years ago on the floor of the Senate earlier this week. Here's a clip in which he explained why he would vote to convict the president for abuse of power. My vote will likely be in the minority in the Senate. But irrespective of these things, with my vote, I will tell my children and their children that I did my duty to the best of my ability, believing that my country expected it of me. I will only be one name among many, no more, no less, to future generations of Americans who look at the record of this trial. 
They will note merely that I was among the senators who determined that what the president did was wrong, grievously wrong. Wendy Benjaminson, uh, as our uh, earlier guest Mark Lacey pointed out, Mitt Romney was the only uh, Republican to vote against uh, his party's president to remove him uh, from office and in fact the only senator in history to do that in any of the three trials involving presidents on trial in the Senate. Uh, Yet – Mitt Romney wasn't the only Republican senator who ultimately said that what the president did was wrong. We heard from Lisa Murkowski, uh, Lamar Alexander. Uh, others said that Alexander spoke for him. I, I believe uh, Marco Rubio said that. I believe Ben Sass said that, both Republicans. And yet Romney, the only person to do this. What should we take from this episode, this stand by Romney? Is this stand which he presents one of principle and of faith to get back to the prayer breakfast question? Uh, does this mark – a point at which there is some differentiation between someone in the party and Trump? Or is that in some ways the exception that proves the rule, that in fact proves that the Republican Party has even those saying that what the president did was serious and wrong, that there isn't any ability to separate from from this president and this party? Yes, David, I think it is the exception that proves the rule. I mean, there were many, many senators who came out, Republicans, who said that what he did was wrong, appalling, things like that. But one, some of them genuinely don't believe it rose to the level of bribery, treason, or high crimes and misdemeanors, which is the level in the Constitution for which a president may be impeached. But others had more practical reasons, to be honest. A lot of the reporting that I've seen both from Bloomberg News and Wall Street Journal and other places is that the senators are really afraid of Trump and of his power on social media, of getting a nasty nickname that will stick, of having him and his supporters come to a pri- to primary them. In other words, to run against their Republican opponent if they're up for reelection, if they have a Republican opponent, or to create a Republican opponent for them. It just creates a lot of political trouble. And, of course, some of them were reading their districts and thinking that, you know, this impeachment trial has not you know, stirred up the passions of the American people and that it may not have been, you know, worth worth the political trouble to vote to convict. I do believe Mitt Romney was genuinely acting out of a, his own moral compass, his own sense of faith, his own sense of right and wrong. For for the impeachment, I he he did it a little late. And so mm-hmm. it, there wasn't a lot of time to give political cover to these other senators. He decided or at least expressed his de- decision moments before the vote. And so, so no so one uh, else uh, like Susan Collins. Yeah. So a Murkowski, a Collins could have been given cover to say, look, this person who's more conservative than I am in many ways uh, is taking this stand. Uh, and therefore, right. I, I can have uh, safety in numbers were I to consider doing this. Right. I have no inside knowledge that they were going to do that. But if they had had a day or two to think about it and known that they would have been joining Mitt Romney, maybe they would have thought again. I, it's possible. At times, chronology uh, uh, proving to be destiny, as we've noted before yes. uh, on, on this show. Gene, uh, let's talk just for a moment and, and, and explore a little bit deeper. The questions of uh, – when I talked to Mark Lacey, he said, you know, it's going to be a hard bar if anybody wants to impeach again. I'm interested in whether the legislative branch, whether other – portions of government can be a check on executive assertion of power by the Trump presidency, whether for this year or for a second term in the wake of an acquittal, given how he's reacted to it, right? Uh, you're seeing a couple of different ways in which uh, there's been an assertion uh, of privilege. In, uh, you know, the attorney general has issued uh, 
that there are new restrictions on opening investigations into politically sensitive individuals or entities, including a requirement that he, the attorney general, approves any inquiry into a presidential candidate or campaign. Uh, this is, seems like a centralization of authority rather than leaving it to politically uh, – excuse me, sort of career uh, figures. And uh, earlier today, the D.C. Circuit Court has ruled, according to Politico and other outlets, uh, three to nothing that Democratic lawmakers do not have standing to sue the president over alleged violations of the Emoluments Clause. And that is the idea of him enriching himself, uh, his businesses, his family's business while he is in office. Uh, Gene, where do you see the guardrails existing – to those who – in either party who may at times feel that the president strays beyond what the White House should appropriately have the authority to do. Well, um, I, I would agree with your prior conversation that the voters are an ultimate check and the public. But I would um, suggest that the next branch that will um, face its own test is the judiciary. There are there are lawsuits out there all over the country. We have conflicting um, opinions on everything ranging from the emoluments question to immigration policy. Uh, it, there just are a range of issues that Democratic states attorney generals have challenged the White House. We still have cases um, over McGahn and whether he should be forced to testify before the House. So I think that that will be the branch of government that faces the next test, and we'll see how it stands up against the weight of um, and power of the White House. If if I could just take us back to um, the decision by Romney to cast, cast his vote the way he did, I, you know, to me that's like the one shining moment in the last forty eight hours. That took tremendous character. And tremendous courage. And whether people agree with how he voted or not, that's up to them. But he – it reminded me that, you know, maybe there is some of John McCain's spirit left in that chamber. I mean, Mm -hmm. McCain's strength was, you know, forged by torture and pain and guilt and terrible things that happened to him. And his sense of duty was driven by that. And – with Romney, obviously, he's he is his faith forges his character, and it reminded me of the 2016 convention when the Republicans, the Romney campaign for, or not 2016, go back, but when Romney was the nominee, 2012, um, sure, 2012, yeah, the he wouldn't talk about his faith because it. Being a Mormon could be controversial, and his campaign concluded they didn't want to highlight it. But at the end of his night on the stage at his convention, they ran a clip about showing the work he had done for the Mormon church and testimonials from people he had helped. They purposely ran it after prime time, and it uh-huh. was the most powerful video they showed over the entire four days. So he has been driven by his faith. He's consistent in that regard. And the courage that he showed to me was a little glimmer of hope. 
you know, Romney was asked, uh, you know, six different ways effectively by uh, Chris Wallace of Fox News. Aren't you fearful? Isn't the president going to come after you? Aren't the supporters going to come after you? Uh, including many of uh, Chris's opinion uh, colleagues over on Fox News in primetime. And they did. And Romney said, look, you know, I, I realize I've done things over the course of my political career that's expedient. Uh, and But I've already suffered the most grievous political blow I can, which is I lost the presidency. So after that, you know, I, I'll take what happens. It was, uh, uh, it was a moment, as you say, Gene Cummings, where it seemed as though Mitt Romney was saying, this has to be a decision that I make because I think it's the right one to do. The night before the, the final vote, the president delivered his State of the Union. Uh, he gave a long list of successes on the economy, speaking in Congress itself. He talked about trade, immigration. He called on Republicans in Congress to help him stop, quote, a socialist takeover of our health care system. And his big message is that under his presidency, America is back again, large and in charge. The days of our country being used, taken advantage of, and even scorned by other nations are long behind us. Gone too are the broken promises, jobless recoveries, tired platitudes, and constant excuses for the depletion of American wealth, power, and prestige. In just three short years, we have shattered the mentality of American decline, and we have rejected the downsizing of Americans' destiny. Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, at the end of it, visibly stood up and tore his speech several times through. She was asked at a press conference yesterday, did she go too far? No, she said. No, I did not. I tore up a manifesto of mistruths. It's very hard for us to get you to talk about the issues that we are working on, uh, H.R. 3, infrastructure and the rest. He misrepresented all of that was necessary to get the attention of the American people to say this is not true and this is how it affects you. And I don't need any lessons from anybody, especially the president of the United States, about dignity, dignity. Wendy Benjaminson, uh, you know, people in journalism made a cottage industry about correcting all the things that the president has said that uh, stretches the truth that uh, aren't true, that are even at times lies. Uh, What made this uh, such an affront, uh, according to the House Speaker and her allies? Well, to uh, Speaker Pelosi and her allies, he uh, misrepresented, they believe, um, the his position on health care, promising not to, um, you know, do away with the coverage for pre-existing conditions when, in fact, uh, the Republicans are trying to do that in court right now. Um, and there were many, many other instances in where he mischaracterized or simply made up uh, what the Democrats are doing. Um, And I think they were also particularly offended by some of the reality show parts of the speech, for example, where Melania Trump, you know, pulls out of her pockets this Medal of Freedom to put it around the neck of uh, conservative talk show host Rush Limbaugh. I mean, a talk show host getting a Medal of Freedom is, is all due respect, David, is a um, um, probably not a career worthy of a Medal of Freedom. And the Democrats thought he was speaking about John Lewis, a civil rights icon and a congressman who is also dying of cancer at this point. So moments like that were just really hard on the Democrats. 
a, a kind of celebratory pre-lap before he even had the vote that he knew he had in hand. We are taking stock of an important moment in the Trump presidency. We're taking stock of a notable week in the nation's history when we come back more on politics, on the Democrats and other elements of the week's news. I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Three decades ago, Sterling Cunha was an angry, violent teenager facing life without parole. Today, he's a celebrated author and a peacemaker. His journey is a window into how violence is perpetuated in this country, but it's also a story about how people change. There's no better example of a person who's prepared to be released. And about people changing the system. We have to reimagine what we're doing, because what we're doing isn't working. This is Cell Blocks to Mountaintops, a podcast and video series. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. My guests are Jean Cummings. She's deputy Washington bureau chief for The Wall Street Journal. And Wendy Benjaminson. She's politics editor and 2020 campaign editor for Bloomberg News. Uh, we have a number of uh, – we have a number of – People who have called in with questions, uh, we've gotten one from a listener from Vermont. He offered this question about an issue he said is often overlooked. My name is Paul Danderand from Burlington, Vermont. I would like to ask the question, why isn't the media and the Democratic candidates focusing more on the economy? And indeed, guys, news this morning uh, – Citing uh, Gene Cummings' Wall Street Journal, employers added 225,000 jobs in January. The jobless uh, rate ticked up slightly to 3.6 percent. Uh, and the journal writes that this, the U.S. labor market is positioned to fuel economic growth in 2020 with wages up uh, 3 percent from a year earlier. Uh, so talk a little bit about that, uh, Gene Cummings, and about how the economy fits into the president's ability to project uh, strength and uh, to attract voters in November and what it means for Democrats who are on on the hustings right now. And we'll talk a little bit about Iowa in a moment. Sure. Um, Those numbers that are out today are very good numbers. It shows solid growth. There were some other adjustments from last year that showed that growth may not have been quite as high as was initially estimated, but certainly it's growth. And the economy is in a strong position. I think that's largely due to the policy of the Federal Reserve Board, not necessarily the White House. But at any rate, the Fed has led the country for the last eight years and in a way that it put the country on, on track for this growth. And if you go all the way back to the prior Fed chairwoman, Janet Yellen, she talked about the strategy that the Fed was adopting in order to put the country on this uh, trajectory. And the Democrats, while they may chafe that Trump takes a lot of credit for it, and, you know, he probably – he does oversell, and he did in his State of the Union. But the truth is, if – the economy was going downhill, they'd blame him for that. So a president gets to take credit if the economy is on on track during their watch. And the economy has strengthened in spite of some of the trade wars that he um, created that some predicted would make the economy stumble or shrink. 
So all of this is good news for the American people. The, even the uptick in the unemployment rate is a good sign because that means people are coming off the benches and they're coming back into the market and they're looking for jobs. So, I mean, this is Trump's strongest card going into re-election. And the Democrats have yet to develop <clears throat> a clear counter message to this particular strong point for the president. And they will eventually come up with something. But at the moment, because they're in their primary and they're really trying to distinguish themselves among each other and not as much with him, they have not hit this chord in a strong way. The one exception is Bloomberg. And he very much is running against the president. He's ignoring the primary opponents. And mm -hmm. he has an, he has economic messages and job messages, and economic power behind it. The, mm -hmm. the, you know, I think he spent over a hundred million already, if I'm not mistaken. And oh my adds, goodness, uh, blanketing 200. markets around the <laughs> yeah. two hundred. Two hundred million. Need, like, we need a running ticker on that. <clears throat> yeah, he's like Coca Cola. <laughs> so let's turn to the Democrats now. Uh, in Iowa, things were. I mean, muddied is too kind a term. Things were all fouled up, uh, as they sort of said in the army back in the day. Uh, so people at a certain point decided to come out of the woodwork and to declare victory. Uh, when Democratic uh, candidate Pete Buttigieg gave his victory speech in Iowa after the caucuses, the results really still weren't in. Uh, so this listener called in with a question about his timing. Hi, this is Paula calling from Eugene, Oregon. And I'm wondering why did Pete Buttigieg declare victory before all the votes from the Iowa caucus had been tallied? So, uh, Wendy Benjaminson, uh, we're going to play that clip of his speech to a crowd of his supporters uh, from the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. So we don't know all the results. <laughs> but we know by the time it's all said and done, Iowa, you have shocked the nation. Because by all indications, we are going on to New Hampshire victorious. Wendy Benjaminson, uh, certainly Iowa did shock the nation, and it is notable. <laughs> that uh, Pete Buttigieg and uh, Bernie Sanders of Vermont have uh, come out in an effective tie. But it also seems as though it shocked the nation by not being able to get its uh, game together, its, its act together, and by not preparing people that it might take time to, to bring in results. That's right. Well, I think probably the people who were most shocked that it was going to take time to bring the results was the Iowa Democratic Party. So in that sense, you know, Pete Buttigieg was prescient. But to answer Paula's question, I think the reason that Pete Buttigieg was declared victory and then turned out to be, I think, right, hard to tell. He is 0.14 percentage points above Bernie Sanders with 100 percent of the results in. But there are so many irregularities. There will be questions about that. That who knows? But, but he was able to do that because he is an extremely organized candidate. He is extremely... He really works this caucus system um, expertly, and he had a staff member called a precinct captain in every precinct in Iowa, 1,700 precincts. They were volunteers, huh. and they watched the results come in. They took their own notes. They counted them up. They sent them to to the Buttigieg campaign. And so – and those, of course, were leaked to a lot of reporters in Iowa. And – 
they were pretty accurate, it turns out. So um, they they did their own count, their own internal count, which we were reluctant to report it that night because candidates do tend to make things look better for themselves, and we didn't have any way to verify them. But, you know, in the light of four days later, um, it looks like uh, his count was right. So he was declaring victory with kind of a wink and a nod that he had a secret no one else had. So then there's the question of Bernie Sanders. Uh, he's running again. He uh, did well in uh, 2016 and gave uh, Hillary Clinton uh, a, a real scare as she tried to get the nomination. He won in New Hampshire. Uh the Associated Press has said it's not going to identify Victor of Iowa. Bernie Sanders declared he won the popular vote yesterday. Here's what he said to supporters in Manchester, New Hampshire. That screw-up has been extremely unfair to the people of Iowa. It has been unfair to the candidates, all of the candidates, and all of their supporters. So what I want to do today, three days late, is to thank the people of Iowa for the very strong victory they gave us at the Iowa caucuses on Monday night. So, Wendy, you're up there in New Hampshire. In a sense, Mm -hmm. part of me thinks, you know, why would we go through the caucuses again as a country? And part of me thinks, hey, look, we learned that these two people had real strong support in Iowa. And presumably, you know, how is that affecting them up in New Hampshire? What are you seeing? Well, we're seeing um, it looks like another Buttigieg-Sanders battle um, here in New Hampshire, and we'll probably see them sort of duke it out on the debate stage tonight. What Sanders is talking about is that he did seem to win by the time all the votes were in. He said 6,000 yesterday, and that was true when he said it. Um, By the time they had 100 percent of the results in, he had something around 2,500 popular votes more than Buttigieg. However, how you get the presidential nomination is you have the most pledged delegates at the Democratic National Convention. It's not about the popular vote. And the delegates are weighted in states by certain criteria that I won't bore everybody with here. But so Pete Buttigieg will have more delegates than Bernie Sanders. Now, fear not, Bernie Sanders will claim and continue to claim that he won because more people voted for him, which is an easy message to understand more than, well, I got more pledged delegates than you did. Um, But the fact is, now, if these results hold, Pete Buttigieg will have slightly more delegates. And and they are both – I'm sorry. No, that's quite – go right ahead. They are both um, in the top two spots going into New Hampshire. There's a poll, um, an aggregate of polls this morning that shows that Pete Buttigieg has cut Bernie Sanders' lead in half in Iowa, in New Hampshire, excuse me, um, to where Pete Buttigieg has 22 percent popularity and Bernie Sanders has uh, almost 27. So, you know, with a few more days of campaigning, we'll see what happens. It does remind me a little bit Sanders' claim of the popular vote, which is right, uh, or appears to be uh, appears to be accurate as of this moment, anyway. Uh, yes. You know, reminds me of President Hillary Clinton. You know, she won the popular vote by a significant amount, but that's not exactly the way the system is structured. All of that exactly. said, you know, some of the big news coming out is who didn't show. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was third. She somewhat disappointed, perhaps, but still in the conversation, although perhaps muted a little bit in the conversation. Former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, you know, who has been presenting himself as the heir to President Obama, did not do nearly as well as he expected. He came in fourth. He received under 16 percent of votes in the Iowa caucus. Here's what he had to say on Wednesday. I am not going to sugarcoat it. We took a gut punch in Iowa. The whole process took a gut punch. But look, uh, 
This isn't the first time in my life I've been knocked down. Gene Cummings, uh, you know, in I think it was 2016 in, in doing a story about the uh, Republican candidates, I talked about how silly I thought that the concept of the lanes were. There's this lane. There's that lane. And, you know, Rubio might be in this lane and Kasich in the same lane or a different lane and Trump is in the, you know, sort of the wild – idiosyncratic figure lane, and it didn't seem to make sense. In this race, it seems to me as though Warren and Sanders are not identical candidates, but really genuinely to the left and progressive lane of the of the side of the field in the Democrats. And you have Buttigieg and uh, Joe Biden effectively offering themselves as moderates. And in each case, one seems to have uh, transcended toward the top at the moment, and the other seems to be fading. What, what, what future is there for Joe Biden here, and what else do you draw from that? Well, this primary definitely is a fight for the future of the Democratic Party. Will it go hard left or not? And so that's why you really don't – you don't have tons of lanes. You got two. And those – and the voters, you can see them kind of anguish with the idea, do I go with my heart or I do go with my head? Because every poll shows – that the top priority for Democratic primary voters is picking the right person who can beat Trump. So it's a head-over-heart kind of uh, debate internally for them, and they're struggling with it. How this affects the uh, um, campaigns, P- um, Mayor Pete's um, victory, I, and you know, I think we can say he won, um, is knocking a lot of strategies and a lot of candidates off their game. Hmm. Uh, uh, Bernie Sanders, clearly their their plan, he won Iowa last cycle. They expected to win it again. They And he expected oh, – they didn't win. They barely lost in 2016 to Hillary. So they were determined to win it this time and then win New Hampshire again and gain that momentum and go. And now um, – Mayor Buttigieg has just thrown that completely off uh, course. Now, Biden is a different story. No one, Biden is not a good fit for Iowa. He never has been. His two prior presidential bids died in Iowa, so he already has two gravestones there when it comes to his presidential ambitions. It's more liberal than he is. And so I don't think anyone had a real expectation that he was going to win Iowa. Mm-hmm. Uh, what the real warning sign, I think, for Biden is the weakness of his organization. And if they don't fix that fast, then he could be in very big trouble. Um, he's not going to win New Hampshire. And so then you got to go to Nevada and South Carolina. They've always talked about South, South Carolina as his saving grace. But if he does poorly in Nevada, too, then we saw Jeb Bush four years ago limp into South Carolina and South Carolina was going to save his candidacy. And that didn't turn out as planned. Joe Biden could be headed for the same fate. The idea that his support may have been broad, but it was very uh, shallow. Exactly. And they and Nevada is a caucus state. They've got to get in there and get an organization that is much stronger, as strong as the one that really all three of the other candidates had operating in Iowa. One of our listeners, uh, Wendy, has written in and said, gosh, you know, Democrats, as Mary Wolf writes, gosh, Democrats have sustained one Democrat after, uh, disappointment after another since the November 2016 elections. It feels like 2020 will be a Dave and Goliath moment. You know, what step can Democrats take to figure out a way to unify, to assure Trump is not reelected, given 
presumably, she's, she's suggesting, given the divisiveness of what we've seen so far in this primary season. Well, one of the things that they have to do, David, is they have to show up. And if you go back to 2016, in certain parts of Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania, the Democratic base and Democratic voters, they didn't show up. They didn't come out to vote. And that's why Hillary lost. There's one county in Wisconsin that we at the Journal went and explored. And if that county, one county, had come out at Obama-level record— then she'd be president. There, hmm. We found one county in Michigan. If they had just voted at the prior levels, she'd be president. That's how close that race was. So what the Democrats need to do this time, if they want to try to avoid a similar fate, is show up on Election Day. That is the word from Jean Cummings. She's deputy Washington bureau chief for The Wall Street Journal. Jean, thanks so much for spending time today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And we've been also joined by Wendy Benjaminson. She's politics editor and 2020 campaign editor for Bloomberg News. She's up there in the Granite State ahead of uh, next week's primary vote. Great to have you too, Wendy. Thank you so much, David. Fun to be here. You can continue the conversation, get the On Point podcast at our website, onpointradio.org. You can follow us on Twitter, find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. On Point is produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Daum, Eileen Amata, Brittany Knotts, Stefano Katsonis, Wes Martin, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Grace Tatter, Adam Waller, and Sydney Wertheim, with help from Carolyn Love and Bradley Noble. Me, I'm David Folkenflick. You've been listening to On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance. Sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Viet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone, forgetting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 